If you have your Bibles, we want to turn back to Proverbs chapter 25. And you'll remember uh, last week we, <clears throat> we read 25 verses 27 and 28, the last two verses in the chapter. But uh, we only got through 27, and, you know, that was by design. I told you that I wanted to, I wanted to spend ample time on both of these verses. I think they're, they're very important. But last week, we, we were talking about studying the Word of God for our own glory instead of God's. And, uh, you know, the absolute importance of uh, building a structure in our lives and, uh, and the New Testament local church being that structure. Uh, that's what God intended uh, for it to be. And I gave you the four absolutes of our relationship with Christ that a church will build into your life when you, when you submit yourself to it. The first one was passion. We talked about a passion for not just the Word of God, but a passion for the things of God, really having a developing a love for what God has for you to do. Then we talked about the second thing was uh, responsibility realizing that each of us, if we're saved here this morning, uh, we have a responsibility to, uh, to this church, to the Word of God, to the things of God, and to God Himself. Then we talked about the third thing was accountability. You know, making yourself... Everybody needs to be accountable to somebody. And uh, for us as Christians, you know, and I know I've heard the pious Christians all my life say, well, I'm accountable to only to God. Well, you're only accountable to God through God's structure, and that structure the New Testament local church. Other than that, you're having an opium pipe dream that uh, doesn't really exist. And then those three things will build into your life the fourth thing, which is something that we all need and something that probably we're all short on, and that is the aspect of self-discipline. Uh, and these four will, uh, will make up a structure in your life when you put them in your life. When you have a passion for the things of God, a responsibility to the things of God, an accountability of yourself to uh, the structure of God, and, and then that self-discipline will, that forms the structure. And today we're going to close out chapter 25 with, uh, with another amazing verse. And, uh, it, you know, if there would be one verse that I would, that I would use uh, more than any other verse in, in the ministry and dealing with people and problems and circumstances, uh, it would be this verse. I, I, I would be safe to say that this verse probably lies at the bottom of every issue that we have as human beings and, and the struggles uh, that we have. And I, in every situation, no matter what it may be, you'll find this verse finding itself in there someplace. You know, and it'll go right along with the verse from last week. So we're going to kind of tie them together. It's what I wanted to do on, on God's glory and getting a structure of, of discipline in, in your life. Now, I'm going to read verse 27 from last week, and then I'm going to read verse uh, 28 from this week, and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start to talk about it here. Here's what it says. It says, last week, it is good, it is not good to eat much honey, uh, so for men to search out their own glory is, is not glory. Now, that was last week. And then the great verse today, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Charles, would you ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Amen. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about building a wall in your life. 
Uh, this message, you know, I, I just love it when, I mean, I don't, I'm, no, I'm not smart enough to coordinate all these things and put them together, but I love it when, when God does it this way. And, you know, and this message, as far as I'm concerned, is, is very timely, seeing that our whole country is divided over building a wall. And I, I, as I thought about putting this together this week, I thought, man, this is, this is great. I, there's all kinds of good stuff here. I mean, uh, you know, President Trump wants to spend $5.7 billion to build a wall across, you know, our southern border. And that has really sparked into a, oh, just an incredible controversy. In fact, we, we flat shut down the whole government over it, you know. And I was worried, you know, the income tax checks wouldn't get back on time, you know. It, it was a real mess. You know, the Democrats, they hate the idea. I mean, they call it immoral. And then the Republicans, they're for it uh, because they're talking about, you know, our own national security and uh, the illegal aliens coming across, the drugs coming across, and all those things. Now, let me just say this. You know my position on politics. I I personally don't care either way. Uh, Building a wall uh, across our southern border isn't going to fix the problems in America. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's just treating a symptom. America will never fix anything until America fixes what's really broken, and that is our governmental system and the way we do things and getting back to the Bible. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, God bless her. She looks like a great-grandmother. Nancy Pelosi says, the wall is immoral. Really? Well, let me tell you something. When you go to the dictionary and you look up the word immoral, there'll be a picture of Washington, D.C., there is nothing more immoral than Washington, D.C. and the politics that goes on there. But I want to say, and I'm speaking to Mr. Trump now. Mr. Trump, if you're following our website and listening this morning, I, I, I want you to know, I'm looking at you now, I want you to know that, and I'm sorry, my mic that goes around this way did not come in yet, uh, but I want you to know that, uh, that from the Bible, based on the Bible, a wall will work. I mean, lessons from the Bible prove that, and lessons in history prove that. You realize that in the Old Testament, every city had a wall built around it? Every city. And they did that because they wanted to keep not people from getting out, or sometimes maybe, but they kept it from the enemy getting in. Do you know, historically speaking, that when Nebuchadnezzar came down to sack Jerusalem in 536 B.C., Jerusalem had walls around that city that were 45 feet high, that were uh, 20 feet thick, and over eight miles of them around the city. And you know, on that wall, they had 34 watchtowers. Do you know, it took him two and a half years to get into that city. He couldn't breach the wall. Finally, what he decided to do was just sit outside, not let anybody come out, not let any food go in, and starve them out. But what kept him from just walking in there and destroying everything was a wall. I'm telling you. I mean, in Joshua chapter 6, you know, you know, Jericho was a walled-up city. Joshua and the nation of Israel is coming down. They're going to take that accursed city, and they come up against it. And, and I mean, it's a brilliant battle plan, you know, lamps, pitchers, and trumpets. And there's a great practical application for your Christian life in the way they took this city. But I want you to know, God knew that he was going to lose a lot of people, and they probably weren't going to get through that wall of Jericho. So you know what God did? He came down and knocked the wall down. Walls all through history have been used. I, I, these people, I, don't you ever go to Sunday school? I mean, every medieval, medieval yeah, every, med, 
every medieval, even in the, in the dark ages, every castle, <laughs> they had a wall around it. You know, with a big moat with the alligators in it and they put the drawbridge down? Oh, come on. From 1368 to 1644, during the Ming Dynasty, during the Ming Dynasty, during the Ming Dynasty, the Great Wall of China was built. Are you kidding me? It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And there's seven natural wonders of the world. By the way, you know that the Bible, the world always counterfeit. You know there's seven natural wonders in the Bible. So the world had to come up with several natural wonders. That wall runs 13,171 miles. Incredible. The Democrats say, well, we couldn't build a wall because it would take too long. They built one for 13,000 miles. Their wall was 30 feet thick, 39 feet at the highest. And it worked. And you know what? It's still standing today. It's called the engineering marvel. And with all that we have today and all the technology, we're talking about the fact that it's not feasible to build a wall. Hey, the Chinese built it in 1300 with no problem at all. Took them a couple hundred years. In 1961, after World War II, what happened was this. The Americans wanted to appease the Russians. And so we held back in the final drive for Berlin, which is the capital of Germany, which was in World War II also. We held back our drive because we wanted to be nicey-nicey with the Russians, and we allowed them to take Berlin. We didn't. We stayed out of it. French stayed out of it. We wanted to appease them. We thought that if we let them have that, that, uh, you know, we, we could get along. And, of course, that didn't work out very well. So after Berlin was taken, Berlin is divided up into, Germany is divided up into four sections. The Russians get apart. French get apart. We got apart. British got apart. Everybody who was the major people uh, in fighting World War II. And Berlin was divided into four. The English got apart, the British, I mean, British got apart, the Americans got apart, the French got apart, and the Russians got, uh, got the part. And Russia uh, and, and America split Berlin. Berlin was split into four sections also. And that started what we know as the Cold War. Most kids growing up today, you know, that don't get much in school, they think it's called the Cold War because they fought it in December and January. That's not the reason. That Cold War went on for many, many, many years. It started in the 50s with Korea and then just got worse from there. We saw it up in the 60s with the Cuban Missile Crisis as three-quarters of the world fell to communism, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, all of those places. And what happened in Berlin was that East Berlin was under communist rule, and it was very oppressive. West Berlin was freedom. That's where the American section was. And in a short period of time, over 2.5 million people left the, left the uh, East Berlin and went into uh, West Berlin where it was comfortable, safe, and under no communism threat. And what happened in 1961, to prove my point, is they built a wall. It was called the Berlin Wall. And the Berlin Wall, as wicked as it was, and that's not the point, and, and the fact that a, a wicked government put them up, that's not the point. My point is that walls work. And from 1961 up to 1989, that wall called the Berlin Wall was the focus of the Cold War. And it kept people out. Nobody from the east now could get to the west. Nobody from the west wanted to go to the east. But it, it, it stopped them. 
And, you know, it's a thing where uh, I don't know why people can't see that. I mean, it's, it, it's anybody who would spend any time in the Sunday school class would see the historical, biblical uh, concept of it. Walls work. I mean, you must not get out much. In the movie King Kong, it was a wall that kept him from getting out till he saw that hot blonde. And then nothing stopped him after he saw her because love finds a way. I mean, it's crazy. And in your life and my life, we need to build a wall. And I want to talk to you about that today. When the Jews went back in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, you'll find that uh, uh, Nehemiah goes down and surveys the city. And the city has been destroyed by, by, uh, by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And the city has been burned. The walls are knocked down. And those Jews go back in Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the city of God. But one of the first things they know they got to do, they got to build a wall. And now spiritually speaking, that wall will be in your life and my life, a wall of Bible doctrine that we build around ourselves to guard our emotions. Now, last week we talked about four areas in your life that the church must build into you. We talked about a passion. You, the, This church should be building a passion into you for the Word of God and the things of God. This church ought to be also, as I said a moment ago, uh, be teaching you responsibility, things that you do. This is your church. There's things that we have to take care of, do business with, and things that we have to handle because we have a responsibility to take care of what God gave us. The third thing was accountability. We have to be accountable for what God has given us. To whom much is given, much is required. And these four things, the three things, then bring self-discipline into our lives. And these four things make up our structure through a New Testament local church. And a wall is a structure. It's something you build. You build a building, it's a structure. You build a tower, it's a structure. You build a wall, it's a structure. Now, our verse says that he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. What does he mean? It means that if you don't have a wall around you to protect your emotions, and I'm just going to say, our emotions will be the number one source of all our issues. We get emotional about things, and uh, it will lead to every bad choice that we make. And we allow our emotions to get involved in it, and we're in problems. We've all seen people like that. I deal with them all the time. They're all over the page. They don't anchor anywhere. There'll be one way today and another way tomorrow. Excuse me. There'll be one way this morning and another way this afternoon. Excuse me. There'll be one way at 10 and another way at 11. They're fluid. Their emotions are not tied to anything stable. And they flit back and forth. We've all seen them. We've all seen it. And simply put, we must have control of our emotions or we're going to get into trouble. And our verse says that if we don't have any rule of our own spirit, now your spirit, that's the human spirit of man. That is our emotions. That's our emotions. That's what we feel. And there's nothing wrong with emotion. They're a God-given aspect. There's nothing wrong with the concept of, of our emotions. What's wrong is when our emotions are not kept in control. And then we're like the city 
who in the Old Testament, the wall was built around to keep the enemy out. But when we don't have the wall of biblical principles in our life to protect our emotions, and I'm going to explain all this to you here, then we have no defenses. And I whole life is dealing with people who have made terrible choices in their life. They continue to make terrible choices in their life uh, in almost in every facet you can imagine. And the end game, the bottom line is simply this. They make emotional decisions based on their feelings. Now, inspirationally, we are God's house. Bible says we are God's building. We know the Bible says we are God's temple. And as a church... We look at each other like people. We see all individuals out there, but when you look at it from the spiritual standpoint, you know, we don't see people. I don't anyhow. I mean, I do, but I don't. From a spiritual standpoint, I know you're Jim, Bob, Jim, Bob, all these guys, Sue, Mary, I get it. I know you're all individuals, but from a spiritual standpoint, you're all buildings, And every one of you is a temple of God, a house of God, a building of God that is in a various stage of building. Some of you are farther along than others. Some of you, some of you have uh, the walls up, and you you got the you got your towers on the wall. Some of you are laboring to put that wall up. Some of you have just laid the first foundations in your life, but you're on the road to building everything. Everybody here is a building project of God, and when we put all the building projects together, 250, 300 of you, you know what we got, spiritually speaking? We got a city, a city made up of houses, buildings, temples, and, and, and the Bible says in, you know, that we're to be a witness, and the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that we're to let our light shine, and it says a city that is on a hill cannot be hid. When you get, understand that your body is God's temple and you get into the Bible and get disciplined and structured in those four things, you know what God does? God turns the lights on. And when we get a whole church of people who have the lights turned on, it's like a city on the hill and the people down there in the valleys can see the light. That's the way it's supposed to work. And for your protection, this church will build a wall of protection around you. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall we teach knowledge, and whom shall we make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Now, it shows you here very clearly that in your life and my life, when we get saved, we begin to build a wall. And, uh, you know, as your pastor, I don't build the wall for you. My job is to provide you the building material. And then you begin to build the wall. I am fully confident that we've been here now almost 16 years, and we have some people that you got your walls up, no question about it. I never worry about heresy creeping into this church. I mean, there'll be a guy every once in a while who'll come in on Thursday night Bible study, and, you know, I'm always kind to him, and I don't ever, I mean, I, I would if I had to, but I don't try to be, I, mean, I don't try to hand him his head in his hand, I, and the reason why I don't, because after where I'm done and Bible study's over, there's about 20 of you over there that are doing it. 
Heresy coming into this church probably will never happen because you all have a good wall around you. A lot of people, you know, go into churches and try to cause problems in the churches. That doesn't happen. I mean, it happens, but it doesn't get very far here because all of you have a wall of Bible doctrine around you. And we built that through the biblical principles, and it's a wall now. And then you take what, what you build around yourself, and then you build that wall around your family. The Bible says line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It's, it's, the indication here is like somebody actually building a wall. When you get a brick mason that begins to lay down brick, he'll lay down, he'll put a, a, a plumb line on it to keep the wall straight. And then what he does is he takes the individual blocks and he'll put a foundation down. And then he won't take the next course of blocks and and put it right on top. He puts them halfway in between. In other words, he ties all of the blocks together. That's where the strength is. And in building your temple, what I try to do is try to lay the foundation in your life and then put the building blocks of Bible doctrine in your life, but we tie them in. Now, I preached this message one time, Steve Brackeen. I didn't even know this. He told me this. He says, he says and what we do then is we build courses up. And, and Steve told me, he said, you know, when you, in, in bricklaying, when you, when you put seven courses of brick up, then in masonry, then the, ne- the eighth one is another new level, and it starts over again. It only goes by sevens, and then it starts over again. And I thought about that, and I thought, wow, that's exactly what the Bible does, because when we laid out the Bible in Bible Institute, we went through God's systematic theology of seven, seven judgments, seven resurrections, seven baptisms, seven mysteries. You build seven, and then you build on the next seven, and then they build on the next seven. That's how you build the wall. And then you get here a little, there a little. You get some on Sunday morning. You get some on Thursday night. You get some uh, when you're working with people throughout the week. You get it from wherever source you get it from. You know, years ago, when I was putting my own life together through the Bible, I got a little three-point outline that really, that I've used probably uh, for the last 45 years of my life. And, and did you ever notice how, and I love this about the Bible, I got all these in my Bible, because if you ever get in a pinch that somebody asks you to give a devotion, or somebody asks you even to speak, it, the, did you ever notice in the Bible that there's all these natural little three-point outlines down I mean, they're incredible. And, I, and I've cataloged them over the years. And I got them in the front of my Bible that if anybody, when I would get someplace, somebody said, hey, can you, uh, can you uh, do a devotion? Or can you speak tonight? Or can you do this and put you on the spot? Hey, you've got the most natural outlines. And you'll find them in the Bible. I mean, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, it simply says that you and I are to examine ourselves, we're to know ourselves, and we're to prove ourselves. Well, that's a great outline. The first thing you got to do and I got to do is examine myself. Then I got to get honest and know myself. And then once I do those two, then I got to prove. You know, you could teach that. That's a great little outline. We already know that the Bible has a doctrinal application, an inspirational application, a historical application. I I, I taught you in people ministry. You know, if somebody's got a problem and you're going to have to deal with it, you got to do three things. Great little outline. You got to identify the problem. Then you got to isolate the problem. Then you've got to annihilate the problem. 
How many times have you heard, and I've preached it, and other guys have preached it in Judges chapter 16 with the life of Samson. We look at sin, and the Bible says sin will bind you, sin will blind you, and sin will grind you. Great a little outline. Well, we get back there in, in the Bible, and it talks about a sure word. It talks about a sure calling, and then it talks about a sure reward. Those little three-point outlines are incredible. When we talk about the Bible, the Bible changed the inner man, then it changes the outer man, and ultimately it changes the end of man. I mean, you could preach that. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, where we take our name from in our church, you find the old way, the old book, and the old path. In Colossians chapter 2, when it talks about the Christian life, it talks about being rooted down in the Word of God, being built up in the Word of God, and then being established in the Word of God. They're phenomenal. They're all the way through the Bible. Three days in the Bible, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, and the day of salvation. Uh, you know, for you and for me, inspiration is the day God gets you alone, is the day God leaves you alone, and is the day you stand alone. And, and when it comes to, to the wall of emotion, the greatest little three-point outline I ever found, ever got, and I've had it for years and years and years, and I've given it to you before, is that simple little outline, faith, fact, and feeling. One of the greatest yet simplest concepts in all of the Bible. Simply faith, fact, and feeling. And if at, at some point we don't get our emotions under control, you're never going to get past square one in, in, in your Christian life. And that's because there are some things in your life that you need to get rid of. And you're emotionally tied to them. That's because there's some people in your life that you need to get rid of and you're emotionally tied to them. And your relationship to them, with them, uh, is, is more important than your relationship with God. So emotionally, you can't make those choices. People, circumstances, they'll always, when you are emotionally involved and you don't have control of your emotions, people will manipulate you. People will use you. They'll play on your emotions. We call it guilt trips. They'll try to manipulate your emotions. Guys do it with women. Women do it with guys. Everybody, people do it in churches. And, and you can overcome your emotions. You can get a handle on it. And it starts by you building a wall. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32, one of the greatest unknown verses in the Bible, it says, and the spirits of the prophets are subjects to the prophets. You know what that means? It means you can control your emotions. And here's how it works. Now, let me use this little faith, fact, and feeling thing here. Let me, let me, let me work it for you. Now, here's how it works. First of all, I'm saved, so I have faith. But my faith is rooted and grounded in the facts. That's Bible doctrine. That's Bible teaching. That's my world. That's my wall. And because it is my emotions and my feelings, the, the, the facts will, will begin to tell me what I feel about something and how I should feel about something It'll be based on the facts of the Word of God and not my spirit or my own emotions. And I'll say it again. Your spirit is your human spirit. And your human spirit will be your emotion. Now, once you got saved, you have God's spirit. 
and there's his spirit needs to override your spirit. And the only way that it does that is through the principles of the word of God. And when you put those word of God's around you as a wall, it allows you to deal with circumstances and situations with a right. I'm not going to say emotionalist because that's not, would not be correct, but putting your emotions in the right frame of reference. Most of God's people will have faith. They're saved. And they have feeling, but they have no facts. And so they're an emotional basket case. They're up one day and down the next. They're, they're, they're never stable on anything. They can't see a good thing or a bad thing because their emotions just change. It's like emotions are like water. And, and you've got you've to get them under control. Now, the greatest example of this will be, uh, and I'm going to use this, and I'm going to come back and show you some practical, but this is a great one. The greatest example of this will be the charismatic movement. Now, the word charismatic means gifted one. And uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're like the, the Gnostics back in the first and second century. And we know from the Bible very clearly they're a cult. They run everything completely by emotions and feelings, and there isn't one shred of Bible doctrine or one piece of a wall in anything in their life. I'm a, I've been in this business for a long time. I want to tell you something. I have never met in all of my life, and I have met thousands. I've never met a charismatic who ever knew square one about the Bible. You know why? Because that's, he puts his feelings before anything the Bible says. His emotions mean more to him than the feelings, than the principles do. And it's all emotion, it's all feeling with no truth whatsoever. There's no facts. And if you took the emotion out of the charismatic movement and just looked at the facts, you'd be out of it so fast you wouldn't know what hits you. I mean, the facts are, understand now, the facts are, forget the emotion, forget the feeling. We're going to talk about that in a moment. The facts are simply this, there's no history. From, from the end of the book of Acts to, uh, to uh, 1900, there isn't one person on planet Earth, not one. There isn't one person anywhere recorded in the annals of history, church history, human history, anywhere that remotely believed what the modern-day charismatics believe and teach. 1,800 years, nobody believed anything you believed, and suddenly in 1900, the re- revelation of God's truth now hit the church. Sorry about the 1,800 years with the Albigensians, the Waldensians, the Polysians, the Huguenots, and, the, and all of those great Bible-believing groups who had to suffer through everything without that. But now, here it comes, 1,900. After 1,800 years of God holding back His grace and His mercy on the bulk of church history, in the final crack of church history, some 100 years now they find the truth. Now you think it would start with a man, some great prophet. No, no, no. It started with a woman. Amy McPherson Simpson, who when Craig was here and I preached on this a while back, he, he went out and bought me the 1947 newspaper I talked about her death, had her picture in it, the whole page. He bought it for me and I still got it at home. And it talked about her history of how she started it. 
And I'm not even going to bother getting into the fact and insult your intelligence that uh, she was held up as one of the greatest pastors uh, anywhere in the 20th century for the charismatic movement. I'm not even going to go into 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that clearly tells you a woman cannot pastor. You know why? I don't want to confuse your feelings with a lot of facts. For the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the top uh, charismatic leaders uh, today that are around today, uh, they live like kings on the money that stupid people send them. They live in palatial palaces. Jim Baker, when he finally got busted and went to prison for all the things that he did, when they went in and looked at his home, he had a doghouse for his dogs that's bigger than most houses that you and I live in. Walk-in closets were as big as your living room. Tammy Bay Faker, Baker, Faker, yeah, Tammy Bay Faker. <laughs> Only goes to prove that all the money that you have in the world can't make you look better. <laughs> Down in Oklahoma, we got a guy by the name of Oral Roberts. And I'm not fighting anybody. If I found Oral Roberts, if he liked Big Macs and cheeseburgers, I'd buy him one this afternoon. I have no problem at all. He's 90-some years old now. I probably got no teeth, but I'd even cut it up for him. He's held up as one of the greatest healers, greatest, greatest charismatic healers in all of the all of, of charismatic movement. And it's a thing where, you know, uh, he I, I've watched him before, you know, and he's got he heals people. And I've always thought it was strange. He heals people, but when he started Oral Roberts University, it was a medical facility to train doctors. Now that seems like a little oxymoron to me. It seems like a little contradiction. If you're the greatest healer in the world and you can heal dead people, bring them back to life and do all this stuff that you guys claim you've been doing, why do you need a medical facility to train doctors? Just get a big place and train faith healers. And he'll be talking to you and suddenly he'll pick up his glasses and put them on. The greatest faith healer on the planet can't heal his own eyes. And I don't mean to be crude. I'm just putting the facts here. When his son shot himself here a while back, a number of years ago, you know what? The great man who claimed about raising dead people, he couldn't even do that for his own son. You see, the facts don't line up with the feelings. Catherine Kuhlman was, was back in the 50s and the 60s. My mom and I grew up listening to her. My mom thought she was a kook, but she was on the radio and she was fun to listen to. She'd start out a radio broadcast, uh, have you been waiting for me? <laughs> she lived down in Oklahoma too, right next to T.T. T. Osborne, who was another great faith healer, was about 60 miles away. When she got a heart attack and wound up really bad, she never one time contacted the other great faith healers to help her out. She went to the hospital. And yet, what? Am I the only one that sees that? Am I the only one that scratches my head? You see, she, they have faith, I think. They have faith. But they don't have any facts. They have faith, they have feeling, and no facts. They claim, they claim they're able to heal, but when you really need them, where are they? They're in a tent someplace. Why aren't you down in case, if you want money, I'll tell you how you can get money. If that's your objective, I'll tell you how you get it. Just go down to the down KU uh, Med Center down there to the burn ward with a little cancer ward with the children in it. 
walk up and down those aisles and those hospital beds and heal those little kids, give their little kids with cancer back to their mom and dad, I'll tell you what, you'd be the richest man on the planet. What are you doing in a tent? What are you doing getting up there and, and, and talking about this and getting a small group of people? Why aren't you got the page out of the newspaper and go to find all the places where people have died? I mean, when Jesus brought Lazarus back, he'd been dead four days and he stank. Why don't you go into the funeral homes, walking in there with everybody crying and saying, folks, I want you to know something. Jesus is alive and well, and I'm going to prove it to you. Come out of that casket. You would have everybody in the world following you. What do you got to do it in dark, damp places where nobody ever sees it or it's never, ever proven? Why don't you down, why don't you go into the St. Jude Children Hospital? Years ago, I had a friend of mine, and he's still a good friend of mine. He was a charismatic pastor. And he'd give me trouble all the time about, uh, about that I'm a Baptist and I don't believe in healing and all of that stuff. And it was fine. It was, it was lighthearted. And, it, you know, it was just, you know, I take it and I give it back to him. You know, and one time his church played our church in a softball game years ago. And uh, I was, they were, up there, they were up the bat. And, uh, or no, we were up the bat. And uh, he had a guy who was catching. And one of my guys went to swing at a ball, missed the ball, came back around and hit him right in the face with the bat. I mean, blood spurted everywhere. And the guy's laying on the ground, and his teeth are loose because I could tell because one's pointing north and one's pointing south. <laughs> and he's bleeding all over the place. And he was moaning and groaning. And, and this pastor, you know, came up to me, and I'm standing over the guy. You know, I don't, I'm going to try. And the pastor came up, and he said, did you call an ambulance? And immediately, this wizard, razor-sharp mind kicked in. I mean, it was like, and it was there. And I said, no, I didn't. And he says, why not? And I said, I thought you were going to heal him. I said, you've been telling me for years that I don't have enough faith. Okay, big boy, show me. Just stay right there, sir. Bleed slower. <laughs> Fix it. You know, he got mad at me. He actually got mad. He'd been telling me for years that I didn't have enough faith and that I was something wrong with me. And when push comes to shove and his buddy is down on the ground bleeding his nose, he can't, he can't, he can't fix it. Well, Jesus would have fixed it. Well, there were places where one time that he was standing there and a woman had an issue of blood and she just reached out and touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. And the Bible says he knew that virtue went out from him and he says, who touched me? He knew who touched her. You know, I was standing right there hoping he'd grab my pant leg. Maybe he'd get a little of my virtue, but he didn't. He was walling in the dirt. Now he's getting dirt in the blood in his nose. And now so the ambulance shows up, and here he comes. You know, the paramedics come over and all those things, and, and I'm standing there. And the paramedic said, what happened? And I said, well, what happened was healing doesn't work. <laughs> what? what you, he didn't have no idea. What are you talking about? I said, oh, nothing. <laughs> Put him up there, took him in the hospital, and I'm looking at my buddy, and I'm saying, really? Really? I said, you know what the problem probably was? You probably knew he was out of fellowship with God, and he didn't have enough faith. Because that's your, always your line. And I said, let me ask you a question. Jesus raised dead people. How much faith can a dead man have? Stupid. Just stupid. Just stupid. I mean, I mean, tongues is a joke. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 lays it out so clearly. 
it's a joke. And, you know, we know that it's the nation of Israel. And it has nothing to do with the church. And we know for 1,800 years, nobody spoke in tongues. Now, they've got faith, but they have no facts. They go from faith right into the feelings. And I'm telling you, if you just do that in your personal life, and we're going to get there in a moment, if you just do that in your personal life, and that's just one great example. And I, and the answer they give, all oh, the answer, all oh, the answer they give. Well, you know, when you lay them down on the line and you finally put them up against the wall where they have no facts, you know what they say? I've had this all my life. Well, well, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. You cannot deny my experience. I felt God. I felt the Spirit moved in me. No, 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 no. Your pants are one size too small. <laughs> what you thought was God was called gastric irritation. <laughs> now, on a personal level, we see it on our own lives all the time. And I see its importance every day. In people ministry, you know, our group of people that work with me and dealing with people and all kinds of problems, you know, uh, we, we, uh, I've taught you a number of biblical principles about uh, people's emotions and how that we, you deal with it by actually, you know, when you work with them, building a wall in them. I, I've taught you the great concept of working with people of reacting versus responding. You see, when you react, that's your emotional outburst. That's your emotions getting involved. Somebody says something to you, and, and uh, it irritates you. Now, this most generally happens with husbands and wives. Your, your, your wife will have a bad day, and you'll come up and say something, and she'll snap at you. Or the husband has a bad day, and he comes up, and the wife, uh, you know, he reverse the process, you know, and, 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 and this is your, guys, I'm going to tell you, this is your, this is your defining moment. This is where you can have a little understanding and you can have a nice rest of your afternoon or evening at home doing your deal or nothing's going to work the rest of your night. Give it up. You know, and reaction will always be the emotional. Uh, it, it's a knee jerk to any situation. Somebody says something, you would irritate you, you say something back. That, they say something back, you say something back, and pretty soon you got a homicide on your hands. <laughs> when we respond, what you do when you respond to any situation, you use the wall that you build around you with biblical principles, and you absorb what is coming to you, and it filters out all the emotion, and you see the situation maybe more clearly, and then you, you deal with it by responding, not reacting. You know, feelings are fluid, and we make your, our choices uh, and, or, or deal with something based on hard facts, not with your feelings. Your feelings change hour by hour. You can get up in the morning and have the greatest morning in the world and get one phone call and now you're sick to your stomach the rest of the day. That's emotion. We need something absolute to keep what we feel about something on an even basis. And that'll be your wall of biblical principles. Knowing, how, knowing them and knowing how to use them. Nothing, I mean nothing will, nothing will show where we are at in our relationship with the Lord and, 
with the wall than when our world seemingly falls apart. <coughs> we will have some great catastrophe fall in our lives. We'll have something happen in our lives, and we will instinctively do one of two things. We'll either react to it or we will respond to it. Most of the time, we react to it. When we go through a really tough time, what we, uh, what, with, with God, what, what we have with God is really what comes out. And, and then I taught you about attitude versus action. Now, all of us are familiar, and we're all famous for forming opinions about things and people before we really know all the facts. We, somebody looks at us crossways or somebody doesn't respond to us the way we think, we automatically, it can't be the fact that they're having a tough day. No, 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 it has to be this. And we're all famous for that, or I should say guilty of that. We see somebody or a situation and we form our opinion about them or it, uh, what we, uh, you know, uh, without ever hearing and really finding out what the problem is. And that opinion will, you know, it'll form an attitude. It really will. And once you get an attitude, that old attitude will always form the action. Actions will always be based on attitude. It's just that simple. And that's why it's so important. Bible says, prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. You got to prove something out, everything and everybody, and you do it through the wall of principles. You don't respond, react, you respond. You get the right attitude. You know, you can hear, you know, we listen to the news and we hear all these people that are famous people and the news reports to us something that they did or something that they are, something that we said. We come away believing it. Now, I'm not saying maybe it isn't true, but we allow other things and people to form our opinions for us, which develop our attitudes, which leads then to our actions. And actions will always be based on emotion. You prove it out. You don't base your opinion on, on, uh, you know, or your decision on what others tell you. I mean, you take it as a grain of salt, but you have to get to the bottom of it yourself. Here's another one. Everybody wants to be happy. Happiness in life is the goal of everybody. Everybody wants to be happy. As the old song says, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, marry an ugly woman for your wife. And this is my, how's the rest of that go? And if you, personal point of view, marry an ugly woman, she'll be happy to you or something like that. I don't know about that. Anyway, everybody wants to be happy in life. Everybody. Whole society has everything to try to make you happy. They'll tell you a new car will make you happy. They'll tell you a new house will make you happy. They'll tell you that when you go to the mall and all the display windows, you're walking up and down and on the commercial and the billboard all day long, you're told, shown things that you don't have that they're trying to tell you if you get it, it'll make you happy. None of them will make you happy. happy. Happiness is one of the most forlorn concepts in our society today. Because happiness always has to come from happenings. It's where the word comes from. If you have a good happening, then you're happy. If you have a bad happening, then you're not happy. It's based on emotions. For a Christian, I'm not saying you shouldn't be happy. I'm just saying your happiness should not be based on the happenings. For a Christian, it's joy. Because joy will endure through anything 
Joy isn't, doesn't know any downside or upside. You can experience joy at a wedding or at a funeral if the person is saved. Joy, joy is there no matter what. It's a constant where happiness changes and fluctuates with your emotional feelings on the happenings of life, joy stays with you as a constant. It's stable in good times or bad times. Now, you hear me talk about all the time, and it's, I say it hoping it sticks with some of you, and it obviously it has. I talk about a working knowledge of, of the Word of God. You hear me say that a lot. Allowing the Bible to work for you by allowing the Bible to work through you. And that establishes another great principle, which we talk about, is patterns of thought. We all have thought processes. We do. And we process things through that thought process. The real question is, where does that pattern of your thought process begin? Does it begin with your emotional feelings, or does it begin with the principles of the Word of God? In your life and my life, what dictates what we feel about something? In your life and my life, what dictates when I look at something or somebody says something, what dictates to me how I feel about that? When you have biblical principles in your life, and that is the wall that you've built, it's hard to get taken advantage of because you see the false stuff coming long before it gets there, and you know how to recognize it. Keeping our emotions, what we think, within the structure of the wall of Bible doctrine that has been built around us. Every day we're faced with decisions or we're faced with choices that will always carry with it some kind of emotional connection to it. I, I don't know of one that, that doesn't. They all do. And our emotions will, will dictate how we deal with, with, with that particular issue. Now, without a doubt, without a doubt, one of the greatest examples of this that everybody can understand will be in finding a spouse. Probably the single hardest, messed up, screwed up for God's people that you're ever going to find anywhere in the Christian world. I mean, it is a mess. I mean, and it doesn't have to be. You know, somebody meets somebody and they don't even have a biblical standard by which they're going to prove that person. They're lonely, they're unhappy, maybe they've had a, one bad marriage or two bad marriages or whatever, and they're unhappy, they're lonely, and that emotional feeling of emptiness, loneliness, supersedes any truth, any facts. So you see a guy who tells you everything you want to hear. You see a guy who displays, and the fact that he goes to church means nothing. I got some news for you. The devil's in church every Sunday. And we, we see somebody and without even, without even giving it a second's thought. And, you know, back in, I've taught it to you over and over, back in the bookstore, it's on the website. Back in Genesis chapter 24, the great story about finding a bride for Isaac, 19 principles, 19 doctrinal principles laid out as clearly as ABC. 
on how a Christian should find a spouse. Unbelievable, right there. And, and we don't ever bother to build that into our wall. We, 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 we hear it, we've been in Bible study, we talk about it, but when, here's the deal. When that opportunity presents itself, you throw everything that God gave you and I toss you to the wind and your emotion drives you to that point. Don't even bother adding 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is 20 more principles on the New Testament teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You forsake those in any search for a spouse or relationship, and you're dead. Your emotions are going to put you into a situation where you're going to believe what you want to believe. I've had them tell, I've had them want to marry somebody so bad and so desperately that they convinced themselves that this guy was saved when there was no way on earth he was. But when you want something that bad and your emotions are overriding the principles and you give up what you look for to prove something, it's where you go. You always wash your feelings and emotions and take them through the Word of God, not around the Word of God. And I'll tell you another one is dealing with children. You know, parents get their emotions involved and they fail their kids. And, uh, you know, you, you, you remember our child training. And we've got books on it. We've got tapes on it. The seven absolutes of training up your children. Building a wall around your family once you build one around yourself. And I know that some people came in late in salvation and your kids were already gone. You lost them to the world. I understand that. But again, we cover those bases, the five absolutes, to build a wall to get those kids back. There's always something you can do that is right. Even if the response is not what you want, it doesn't matter. The question is, did you do what was right? And your feelings and emotions should sure always be governed by the principles of the Word of God, the wall that you have built. Most kids, most parents won't train their children this way because most parents won't go that way. Most parents live their life on their feelings and they infuse that into their kids. And when their kids become problems, just like the parents are problems, the only way they can deal with it is by enabling their kids to give them everything to shut them up and keep them happy. And that's the way it works. People will get into a stressful emotional situation and then it will make bad emotional choices because the choices were not based on a structure of faith, fact, and feeling. Now, how do you do that? Well, it's, it's a lot simpler than it seems or it even sounds. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? You want God's instructions on anything? Okay, here's how you do it. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? For we have the mind of Christ. That's where you start. You realize that the Word of God, the Bible, is God's mind. And in it, and everything that he does, Forget all the doctrinal, forget all the prophecy, forget for everything that he does in a personal, practical way to you is to give you his opinion on how you deal with every situation in life. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, 5, 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You get the instructions, your instructions, my instructions, from the principles of the Word of God through the structure, the wall, the doctrine you have built around you through God's structure for your life, the New Testament local church. When you have no church, you have no structure. There's plenty of people that have a church but don't submit to any structure. They still have all kinds of emotional problems. But when you get God's mind in you, it will build a wall, a structure of doctrine into your life. When new men make decisions and have to deal with issues and you allow the Bible principles to tell you how to feel, what to feel, when to feel it, now you're on your way. Great example of this is, we're all guilty of this, I am too, is watching movies on TV. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you know as why I do do, that many times they can become emotional. You'll have, you'll have somebody who, uh, some couple who's in love and, you know, one of the spouse dies. You'll have Top Gun and Goose gets killed. Did not we all lament over goose? I know I did. I've seen things that I shouldn't tell me. I just sit there and tears run down my face. I don't watch the, 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 the animal planet. I can't go there. I enjoy watching teenagers get cut up with chainsaws, but when it comes to putting dogs to sleep, I'm not there. Uh, it, it, it's a thing where we watch something, you know, and, and, and it gets to us. I'll tell you, I'll, I don't know if you've seen it or not. You ought to watch it just for the pure patriotism and love for country. The movie Taking Chance. How many have ever saw that movie? One person. God bless you. You go to the bookstore, pick out whatever you want. You're the only intelligent person in this room today. Come on, nobody's seen that about, about Kevin Bacon plays the part? Come on, am I helping you now? Kevin Bacon plays the part of a Marine colonel who's stuck in Washington, then is, and it tells a story of a young Marine that gets killed in Afghanistan. And it, it goes through the whole process that how when they get killed there, they bring their bodies back to Dover, in, uh, I think in Maryland, and that's where they process the bodies, and they go through all of that. But then they got to have an escort to take them back home. Well, this kid just happened to die that uh, was from his hometown. And he was in the first Gulf War, Bacon was, but he didn't go to Afghanistan, so he feels guilty. So he asked for permission to take this kid and be his escort back to his hometown. It's one of the most moving, amazing things you ever saw in your life. I won't tell you something. I mean, I'm going to cry right now just telling you about it. It's, it's moving. I mean, I ain't kidding you. I mean, if you're a patriotic and you love soldiers and you love this country and you, you really get to see uh, the, behind the scenes where he's got blood soaked and they're, they're scrubbing his fingers, you know, and everything. And, and yet the body is non-viewable because he got shot in the head. They're not even showing it. They take such precise with his uniform, his medals, his every. It's unbelievable. So he's waiting there for the body to be ready. They put the body, they put the body uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a casket, and they take it. He's got to go to the airport. 
So he goes to the airport. You got to fly uh, to this guy's place in Montana. They put, you know, put him in a hearse to take him to the airport. He goes in behind the scenes, but in the airport, you know, and underneath, and they're going to put the body there. And uh, he he won't leave the body. So he sleeps on the concrete all night long with the casket. In the morning, the plane's ready to leave. And the, uh, they, they put it up there, and he's standing there, and he's saluting as they're running the Catholic up. And all these baggage handlers, all these baggage handlers are standing there with their hands over their heart, you know, as that casket goes up there draped in a flag. He's sitting on the plane, they're flying. And uh, it's a thing where they land, and, and the pilot... He met the pilot before they took off, and the pilot, commercial pilot now, but he was an A-10 Warthog pilot in the Gulf War. And so the plane lands, and the pilot comes on the intercom, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, he says, we have arrived at our destination, but I'm going to ask you to all stand on the plane. We have a fallen hero that we're bringing home, and uh, we're going to disembark him first before everybody else comes out. So Kevin Bacon comes over, he's standing there, and the cast is coming down, everybody's standing there. They start leaving the people out, every one of the people stand there with respect to this guy. They put him in a curse. He's got 80 miles to go. And when he's in the casket in the back of the curse, it's draped an American flag. And he's driving down this mountain road, wherever to go, like two, three, four hour ride. And this big truck goes by and you can see down inside the casket with a flag on. The big truck goes by, turns its lights on, gets in front. Another car goes by, turns its lights on. By the time they got there, there was 50 cars in that procession with their lights on following that casket to where it went. It's one of the most moving things you've ever seen in your life. And I sit there and cry through that thing, weep through that thing, and I'm telling on myself right now, I sit there and weep and cry through that thing, you know what? There's people in my neighborhood dying going to hell I ain't shed a tear over. Now don't let that stop you from watching the movie. But see, it's emotions. Now, I got to be honest. I tell myself, that's not real. I, tell, I do that, you know. I get a handle on it. For me, it's not, it's not just that movie, but I take it deeper than that because that movie and that kid represents all the boys out there that gave their life for this country. Amen. So it's a broader thing for me. But it's incredible. You got to go home and watch it tonight. I tell you what. And just send me a text. With, I don't know if your text got smiley faces, frowny faces. If it's got a teardrop on it, just send me that one. <laughs> but that's what we do. We watch a movie, you know, and something happens, something goes bad. I'll tell you another one. You want to watch another one? Is it's made back in the war, and it's a true one uh, about the Sullivan brothers. You know who the Sullivan brothers were? Yeah, Sullivan brothers were on the Juno. They all joined the Navy. They, the whole movie shows them growing up as little kids. Their dad worked for the railroad. And, uh, you know, they all stuck together, did everything together. And uh, when World War II broke out, they all joined the Navy together. And back then, and this was in like early 42, back then they would allow brothers to serve together. So all five brothers were on the same ship, the Juno, that got in the Battle of Guadalcanal at Salvo Island and got destroyed and sunk, and all five boys all five boys died on that ship. That story, that movie tells the story, and it was made back in the, back, it was made almost while the war was still going on because they sold millions of dollars with the war bonds for it. And it showed that, it showed that, you know, them going up there with those five letters to that mom. And, uh, you know, when the dad was on the, oh, here's where, the dad was on the train, 
you know, it was a thing where he'd be going out of the yard and there'd be a water tower there and all those little five guys would get up there and wave at him as he was going by. And so now he's lost his boys. He goes to work that day and the train's pulling out. It's the end of the movie, train's pulling out. And he looks up at that water tower and there he sees those five little boys waving at him. <sighs> I'm telling you. You had to watch it. Just as a sense of, and the real problem is, you know, that bothers me is they're all Roman Catholic. But it's a true story. It's a true story. And after that, they, they, they made a decree that brothers could never serve together in the same unit anymore. And then comes up saving Private Ryan. He had four brothers. That's a true story. And, of course, they all were in different outfits. And they all got killed, two in Normandy and then one. But they were all different. But it's, it's, it's a true deal. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. You know, in time, you will build a discipline into our lives that you, it becomes automatic. Uh, you know, it, you don't have to even think about it. it. It just becomes, something hits you, the principles are already there. I watch Tabby up here. Uh, you can't see her because she's up here, but I watch Tabby. Tabby, and I thank God for Tabby every day. She's one of the, she's a blessing to his church. She plays the piano. But you ever watch her? When she does an offertory, I mean, it's great. I mean, it, it, when she plays for us, it's great. But you ever know, she's not even looking at the keys. She's not. She's looking at David back there. <laughs> she's not looking at the keys. She's just looking up here and all around, and she's going from this thing. And I stand over here, and I'm amazed. We go. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's, here's your... And it amazes me. You know, those keys have become automatic to her. But she just didn't go buy a book on learn to play a piano or a book on music. She got a teacher. That teacher taught her the fundamentals of playing the piano. Then she practiced and she practiced and she practiced and she practiced. And in the process of practicing, that piano becomes second nature to her. And when you take the biblical principles and you get a good teacher and you take those things and you apply them and you apply them and you apply them and you use them in time, they become automatic to you. You don't have to think about it. They're just right there. You know, and it's a thing where she disciplined herself. She had, you know, if you're going to play an instrument or you're going to do, you have to discipline yourself. Nobody ever got to be great trumpet player or trombone player or saxophone player or a piano player. Nobody ever got great by just sitting down once a week. They had to discipline themselves to it. And when we disciple you, we're beginning that. You know, the word disciple comes from the word discipline. Jesus had disciples. Those disciples are called disciples because they're men who disciplined their life to his teaching. And when we disciple you, we're teaching you a discipline. A discipline to the teachings of God being what he thinks and and taught. If you take medicine, you go to medical school, and you say, I'm going to go to med school. If a guy is kind of a, a sharp guy and knows the lingo, he's going to say, oh, really? What discipline are you going to study? Because doctors have different disciplines. You have pediatrics. You have general practitioners. You have heart surgeons. 
all there, it's a different discipline. But what they're saying is they had to discipline themselves to that medicine to become a doctor. So when we disciple you, when you get into discipleship one and two, when we teach you discipleship one and two, when we go one-on-one, give you the Bible, we are laying the foundation of a structure in your life by building the first courses of the building block around you that's going to lead to discipline in your life. And, you know, there'll be times that the way I do it now, I mean, our church is where I can do it. I'll give you somebody to disciple, and I'll put two or three people with you. And somebody says, oh, he just does that because he... No, no, no. There's a, there's a method to my madness. Everything I do has a purpose behind it. I may not tell you why it is. I don't need to tell you why it is as long as I understand why it is. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 16. Now, I'll show you the principle behind when I put two or three people around you or you need a support group. You come in and you're in a bad way, emotionally, got problems. I'll put three or four people with you. We do it all the time. Here's the principle behind it. Now, this is the story of David and Abigail. And most people, there's some tremendous things. But most people never see this. Look at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. But the men were very good unto us, and we were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we were uh, conversant with them. They were in the fields. They were a wall unto us, both by night and day, all while we were with them keeping the sheep. That group of people formed a wall of protection around them. So when you need a support group or people are discipling you in the basics, I'll put a little wall around you of people. That's where it comes from. Now, when I put a small group around you, a support group, a discipleship group, whatever you want to call it, my principle behind it is to put a little a, a wall around you because if you just come in and you got problems and you got emotional issues and you haven't learned how to handle it yet, you're very susceptible so you need some stability. And you don't have it yourself, but I got the people that have it. So we are to you as David's men were to these guys. They were a wall unto us both by night and day. And we take care of you. We help you. We form a wall of, of biblical doctrine around you, protecting you. Now, the, the next step is, is, is learning biblical principles. This is where you now uh, get into the book yourself. We teach you discipleship one and two, one-on-one, but when it comes to the next level, now we require you to get into it, that responsibility and accountability thing. And you start now to dig it out, and then we help you through that. Many of you are going through that. And it's through this structure of God's New Testament program, the New Testament local church, that you develop your passion for truth, you develop your responsibility uh, to learn and apply truth, and you understand how important it is to stay accountable to the structure that God's given you that is based on that truth. And you build walls in people's lives. You build walls. God begins that transformation of your life. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is that, uh, which, uh, uh, which is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be proved what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's what it is. 
When you get that structure in your life, you begin to prove something. Bible says prove all things. You know what you prove? You prove what is good in your life, what is acceptable in your life, and what is perfect in your life, the will of God. And the Bible, church, God's structure is the only thing that can do that. The world will conform you. The world will reform you. The world will inform you. The world will misinform you. But only the Bible can transform you. And it transforms you by building a wall of protection around your number one issue, your emotions. That your emotions get in line. And from that, you become that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in in your life. In 1898, the end of the Cold War. President Reagan was president then, and he was a good president. I've always thought that the end of our good presidents, the end of our good presidents ended, and I'm not saying there haven't been some that have been good, but I think there was a real value in having a president who served in World War II. And, uh, and then George, uh, the father, George Bush, uh, was a, a, a torpedo pilot in World War II, shot down. Uh, an incredible, uh, incredible good guy. And uh, he was president at that time, and he was, he was speaking in Berlin. And he was speaking at the Berlin Wall. And things were changing in, our, in the world. Russia was, was uh, and it, it's one of the most telling moments. And he was at the exact same spot where JFK preached uh, to the Russian, to the German people, at the same spot back in the 60s. And uh, he gave, George Bush gave his crowning speech. And I remember hearing it. You can still go online and find it. I remember him preaching there, talking there and going through it. And the place was filled with German uh, people on the west side, uh, you know, and they could hear over on the other side. It was very moving. And he called for Mr. Gorbachev, who was the premier uh, Russian president at the time. He called for Mr. Gorbachev, and this was his line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And shortly after that, the Berlin Wall came down. I've got pieces of it at home. Some missionary sent me uh, of it. And it was, they broke it down. And it, it opened up the freedom to go back and forth. And, and he did. Gorbachev tore down that wall, had it broke down. But at the same time, that marked the end of the Soviet Union. The tearing down of that wall was even though they were an evil, godless nation, it was their undoing. Because walls do work. They work for good or they work for bad. In this case, it was for bad. But when they tore down that wall, Russia ceased to exist as a world power. That wall was so symbolic of Russian tenacity, and it, it was over. At that, Russia itself was divided into infraction from the Ukraine to everywhere. In fact, Putin right now is trying to regain the great Russian glory that they had in those Cold War days. And at that, it all hung on the fact that they tore down the wall. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, we need to build a wall, a wall of truth, a wall of principles, a wall of doctrine, a wall for our protection against the onslaught of the enemies and the most important enemy we have is ourselves, our own emotions, and our own feelings. My job is fairly simple. It's only complicated when you bring in the people you got to work with. But my job is fairly simple. 
uh, through this New Testament church, God's structure. My job is to help you uh, because, as our verse says, he that hath no rule over his own spirit like a city broken down without walls. My job as pastor and really the job of this church is to supply you with all the building material so you can build your own wall. I can't build it for you. I can, I can, I can be your spiritual Home Depot. And we do home deliveries. No delivery charge. We'll drop it off in your front yard. But my job as pastor and the job of this church, really any church, is to supply you with the building material. And then what I do is help you. I just don't leave it there. I help you understand the blueprint that God has for you in building your life for him. And God has provided us a great structure and a blueprint for all of us. God's systematic theology. And it starts with you recognizing the importance of getting your defenses up and building a wall. And that wall has to be built here a little, there a little. It's built line upon line, precept upon precept. You simply start with discipleship one, move in discipleship two, let us be, put that little group of wall around you with people who will stand for you when you cannot stand for yourself. And then pretty soon you'll stand on your own. When you get to that point that you get into the Bible doctrines and you go through the process that I have here for you to do that, and we help you to put that, find that all for you, and you're doing the work, getting it, that's what made every one of you where you're at today who have a good handle and have your wall built. And and, and yet I say this, I I don't want to set you up for failure because even in everything I've said today and as good as it is and as true as it is, we're all going to have our down days. No wall is going to be totally impenetrable. Uh, there's going to be times when we don't do everything we should do. That's just the way it is. But I'm telling you, there, there's no reason for it. And uh, as long as we stay with the principles, as long as we use the principles, as long as we understand the principles and follow the blueprint. And, uh, you know, you take those building supplies and you build your wall. You build it strong, you build it straight, and you build it sound. And this is what Paul, you know, was referencing in Acts chapter 20. And, you know, in Acts chapter 20, he's talking to the church there at Ephesus. It's a tremendous chapter. This is right before he goes down to Jerusalem. And he's going to, you know, he's saying goodbye to them. And he leaves them some, it's one of the models for our church in the Bible, along with Acts chapter 13. It's incredible, incredible, incredible six or seven things he tells them that they should be, they need to keep doing. And he comes down around Acts chapter 20, down around verse 24, and he's faced, he's talking about the ministry, he's talking about the opposition, he's talking about all the things that, that he has faced, and he's telling them the things that they'll have to face. And he makes one of the greatest statements that shows where we should be. And in spite of all that, he simply says, and none of these things shall move me. He was unmovable. And when you build a wall... Not only do you keep people out, but the best part of it, as far as I'm concerned, is you keep yourself in. And you build that wall high enough, you'll never break out of it. And that's where it should be. We ought to be so grounded and so passionate and so committed to the things of God in our life and the wall that God has built us, being transformed by the rock of God to be an unmovable rock that stands for God. And that's where we need to be. So we need to build a wall. And a wall does make a difference. And I care little what the America does with it. It ain't going to change a thing. We are already 
in the final sunset of this country. But I do care about you. A lot of things in your life every day you're going to have to deal with emotionally. A lot of things are going to come into your world. And if you do not get a handle and you deal with them the right way, your emotions are going to destroy you. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be dismissed.